0: The Indicator from Planet Money is your daily source for economic stories, stories that peel back this onion we know as the U.S. economy. Today on the show... Today on the show... Today on the show... Forget everything you thought you knew about the unemployment numbers. Listen and follow The Indicator from NPR.
1: What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Karen
0: Grigsby-Bates.
1: It's that time of year again, y'all. It's blackface advent. Y'all know what it is. Every October in the run-up to Halloween... There are costume parties, of course. Naturally. Right. And there are controversies about those costumes and those costume parties. Because people somehow decide it's a good idea to show up in blackface or yellowface.
0: Or those dreadful Pocahontas costumes. You're wearing traditional Mexican clothes and calling it a costume.
1: Uh, all the time. All the time. So a public service announcement to y'all, you know, your grainy videos you take on your phone from your Halloween costume party will eventually find their way onto TikTok and go viral and become a problem for you, probably.
0: A big problem. And it doesn't really matter if it's plain and simple ignorance mm. or genuine malice. It's easy for those celebrations of the merry and macabre around Halloween to brush up against our country's very dark past. Like this thing that happened with my neighbor.
1: I remember this story, Karen. Oh, mm-hmm. what a mess. What a mess. All right, just remind us what happened.
0: Our neighborhood is a predominantly black neighborhood. It has been for, you know, 60, 70 years. But that's changing quickly as more white folks move in. And one relatively new neighbor and his wife are really really into Halloween. Mm -hmm. Their house stands out because it's decked out for Halloween. I mean, the rest of us might have, you know, a pumpkin or the odd black cat. But a few years ago, I came out of my house and there was a skeleton hanging from a noose Mm. jean attached to the big magnolia tree in front of his house.
1: Mm, like, yeah. I'm cringing for this cat. Oh my God. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was very uncomfortable. Um, and not just for me. The neighbor who lives between us, who is black, went over and told him he needed to take his skeleton down.
1: Period. Good for her for doing everybody solid. Like, that's a misfit. <laughs> Appreciate you, sis. So what did the skeleton dude say?
0: Well, after my neighbor took it upon herself to educate him about this country's tortured history of black people being strung up from trees, he was horrified. I would hope so. Yeah, and he took it down right away. Mm -hmm. Now, he replaced a gene with big bags of simulated bloody guts, or (laughs) maybe body parts. I don't know. I I didn't look too carefully.
1: The thing about Halloween is that the big bag of, like, fake dismembered body parts, that's the polite compromise option in this scenario, because that's the time of year it is. Yeah, so gross. (laughs) But yeah, Halloween's not very silly stakes. That's what we're digging into in this episode, and then... On the back half, how scaring ourselves on purpose can make us feel better. We're going to replay some code switch conversations from Halloween seasons past. Starting off with a combo you had, Karen, with our play cousin Layla Fado. Layla then was reporting on grace for NPR when this conversation ran the first time. But she now is in a big seat. She hosts NPR's Morning Edition.
2: You know, you know those costumes every year they're in the prepackaged plastic wrap Native American woman, Native American man on the shelves of pretty much every uh,
0: costume. Yes, I saw some
3: earlier this week. <laughs> right. It'll be like a long sleeved shirt um, with fringe on the edge of the sleeves or on the chest or something like that.
2: I spoke to Hainu Josephine Tarrant. She's a New York-based artist, performer. She's of the Ho-Chunk, Hopi, and Rappahannock tribes. And she says those shirts actually harken back to a very specific time in the 19th century when white settlers were moving west, displacing indigenous people.
3: During all of this and all of these Dakota wars and these other wars and these removal acts and starvation and famine and tuberculosis smallpox, I mean, so many sicknesses and violence was attached to that time period. A shirt like that is meant to kind of like represent that, you know, represent a war shirt or represent a ghost dance shirt. And these are shirts that would be worn by Native people during this particular time in history.
2: That this costume is literally based on a shirt. That people were hoping it would protect them from violence as the land was settled is harder to acknowledge as problematic because that's the founding of this nation and the founding of the nation is problematic. But And she, she made that point, too. How come this like violent moment in which we're depicted in one specific way is what you choose to memorialize yeah. forever and ever and ever forever.
0: via these costumes?
3: In a way it really um is a reflection of I guess the the nation's kind of um depiction of what we what how we look to them and what we are to them.
0: The general world is making them eternal victims because of the time period they chose to freeze in amber. Exactly. So seeing these fake suede fringe shirts, the fake braids each year What does she feel when she actually sees these costumes
2: being sold and being worn? She's exhausted, she said. She feels like, in a lot of cases, people will retire certain costumes when they finally understand the offensive nature. And although we still see people don blackface now and again, there is a national uproar because there is an understanding of the history of dehumanization and degradation that goes with that. And she feels like... It's very hard for people to understand that same feeling for Native American communities because it's part of this sort of history that's depicted in the films and the silent era films.
3: After Manifest Destiny and through the silent film era into, you know, films with sound, there was a reoccurring theme of like cowboys and Indians always, Mm -hmm. you know, because that is kind of like the quote unquote American story of how we conquered this land, how we went west, and how the 50 states came to be.
0: So this would be the sort of thing that we always saw in all the old John Wayne movies of the, you know, the war whoops and the riding bareback on ponies and swooping down and swinging a tomahawk and speaking in um, English that they don't use in real life.
2: Right. And then the other side of cultural appropriation is that money that's being made off of all these costumes is not going to these communities. And, um, and she talked about that as well. Like, if you do want to appreciate us in some way, appreciate our culture, which has so much beauty and so much history in it, you can do that.
3: In a way, I completely understand, as a non-Native person, why you find our culture beautiful. you know. And I would never look down on somebody for thinking something's beautiful, but you need to find another way to support us. We have products. We have jewelry. We have podcasts. We, you know, we have theater. We have all of these things that we are trying to work on too, you know, and we're trying to get out there. And I would say that's one of the best ways to support us, you know. Um, Repeatedly in this country, we've not been honored, you know, from treaties to land agreements to, you know, annuities from the state, you know, uh, to water rights. I mean, constantly uh, we are denied uh, that support from this country.
0: Well, hopefully as time goes on, we'll be seeing less and less of those kinds of costumes and more and more support for the communities that the costumes are alleged to represent. Yes, speaking of what are you wearing for Halloween <laughs> if I can find the right stuff I might go to Ruth Bader Ginsburg Ooh. I need a gavel and you need the the like the little lace collar yeah. I think nine zillion other people had that idea you should do her workout them. outfit actually oh with, with the little yeah <laughs> with a <her> little two pound weight <laughs> <waist>. yes <laughs> that's about my speed <laughs> later Paddle, thanks so
2: much thank you
1: when we come back how horror fiction can help us process real life trauma
4: real life is so scary racism is so scary climate change is so scary that a movie about some demons and monsters and vampires listen that's nothing that's after the break
1: stay with us damn it stay with us Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Duckhorn Portfolio, Napa, California. Founded in 1976, the Duckhorn Portfolio's 10 luxury wineries include Pinot Noir powerhouses Calera and Goldeneye, and household favorites Duckhorn Vineyards and Decoy. This holiday season, elevate your celebrations with some of wine country's most coveted wines. Discover more at duckhorn.com NPR. Jean Karen Code Twitch, and we're back talking about fear in an age of horrors
0: Jean you sat down with Tanana Reeve Du she's an author of several supernatural thrillers I've read many of them and she's an amazing writer Yep. and she teaches a class here in LA at UCLA on black horror and Afrofuturism
1: yes and Tanana Reeve told me that she got her love for scary movies from her mother who a lot of people may know the influential civil rights organizer Patricia Stevens Du
4: as a kid watching horror, for me it was like a roller coaster ride, like wee! Because I hadn't been through anything. I hadn't lost anything or anyone. But from my mother, who had um, felt unsafe in her own nation, who had been uh, targeted by state violence during the Civil Rights era, I really now believe that she found a kind of solace in the fake monsters, mm-hmm. the monsters that weren't real, because she didn't believe in vampires. She didn't believe in zombies. She had no actual superstitions in real life that I can think of. So she was not a believer in any of this stuff. <laughs> this was all escape. Right. So it's a way to sort of uh, you take that pain and the horror that you're walking around with Find something on a screen that replicates what your fear looks like and go through a process. So either the hero or heroine is going to fall or they are going to win. But either way, you've been through some kind of a process where you can just, whoo exhale afterward and right. walk away. And, oh, that wasn't even real, you know? So whatever, whatever's on my plate, whatever's dogging me is not going to be that. It's not a demon, at least.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess, like, horror also has, you know, like – often has in-universe rules. So, like, the victims, usually they've transgressed in some way, right? They're teenagers who are having sex. Maybe they covered up some kind of crime. Maybe they're just greedy. Um, And so there's, like, the element of punishment there. But in real life, the kind of violence that people experience because of their identities is much more randomized, right? Like, it feels like... That
4: that is, yes, so well put. I mean, that is true. I mean, I I teach how to write horror, too. And one of the, the common elements you find in both cinematic and literary horror, is that because these protagonists are human,
1: mm-hmm. they do
4: have flaws. And what you do is you, you amplify those personal flaws as the doorway that leads them to the mouth of the supernatural. So there is this sense that even a small transgression can be so unforgiven in the world of a horror novel or, or a horror movie that it unlocks the door to the demon or, you know, it, it wakes the vampire or it leads you straight into the arms of a zombie because you weren't even supposed to be here right now. Right. <laughs> you know, you're, <laughs> you're supposed to be somewhere else, but now, too bad for you. Um, and, and in those old slasher movies in the 80s, it was so obvious, too. Like, if you had sex, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you did drugs, <laughs> you were in big trouble in a horror movie. <laughs>
1: Was there, like, a seminal horror movie that you picked up just, like, in proximity to your mom? That, like, what were the movies or the books that she really, really rocked with that sort of resonated with you? One of them is is the movie Mole People.
4: Right? I just remember being a kid, watching this movie Mole People, thinking it was so scary. Can you tell us a little about the Mole People?
1: I've, I've never seen this movie.
4: It's... Mostly very forgettable, but it's a bunch bunch of scientists who, I don't know, they discover like an alternate world under the earth, Uh where these weird humanoid creatures have created some kind of dominion over deformed-looking mole people.
1: The blood-lusting mole people storming from their subterranean caverns.
4: Who were, you know, dark (laughs) But, I mean, they don't look human so much, but they're definitely dark and hunched and dressed in rags. And, you know, that's probably what what scared me most was that they were down there being abused that way. That was what was scary. Mm -hmm. In adulthood, just a couple months ago, I went back to look at mole people to try to see why it spoke to me so much. (laughs) And I was very confused for the longest time. (laughs) It was not well done. The acting wasn't good. Uh It was really kind of bland. These scientists are on an expedition. I'm like, whatever. But then the mole people showed up. And they're supposed to be the scary monster, you know, to the viewer the movie was intended for. But I got it as an adult, why it had spoken to me so much as a child. I related to the mole people. They were dressed in tatters. They were being whipped and forced to work. They were hmm. they were a slave metaphor. And we were supposed to feel so bad for the heroine when the mole person drags her under the sand and she's screaming. But I was like, You know, Viva la Revolución, baby. Let's get, you know, let's rise up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tanana Reeves. So I'm going to play shrink with you for a second. It doesn't seem on the surface that, you know, going to watch people be hacked or (laughs) hacked to pieces would be self-care for someone who thinks about (laughs) race a lot. (laughs) Um. So what is... What is it about the experience for you in consuming and creating horror that is therapeutic or cathartic?
4: Yeah, that idea of watching people hack to pieces for no reason doesn't appeal to me mm-hmm. either, I have to say. Okay. Um, there are times I, I, I walk out of a horror experience feeling further traumatized, hmm. not less traumatized. You know, like this: there's a family camping and somebody killed everybody, including the baby. That's... That's not fun to you know. That's not fun to watch. And for some people, that's what horror is. Like every horror movie is just that. So they can't understand why anyone would like that stuff. Mm-hmm. When in fact, there's a wide variety of kinds of horror, from psychological horror, which has no supernatural element, but um, to science to science fiction horror, like a movie like Alien or Get Out is science fiction um, because of the science element. Um, supernatural demon horror, haunted house horror, and for the ones that do appeal to me, and I love all of those. I love the haunted house. I love the family on vacation and something goes wrong story, because every single time I get to watch characters, hopefully that I care about, that's where I have to start, Mm -hmm. characters who seem real and whose lives I care about, confront something they were either definitely afraid to confront or had no idea even existed until right now you mean there's demons, right? Rise to the occasion, uh, figure it out, fight back. You know, I I really think that the survival strategies and horror appeal to me.
0: They're coming to get you, Barbara.
2: Stop it. You're ignorant.
0: They're coming for you, Barbara.
4: Um, My students were all laughing at the way Barbara falls and trips and, you know, just sort of sags on a corner. And Night of the Living Dead. And that behavior does not appeal to me because that behavior will not do anything for me if anything really goes down where I have to run or fight. And I do think in a time of heightened political crisis and social crisis, A lot of us do sort of sit with that feeling that we don't know, was that a car backfiring or do we need to dive under this table? Mm -hmm. And if I have to dive under this table, what do I need to grab so I can hit somebody with it? You know, this is more and more in the back of our minds. Are your neighbors going to descend on you for no reason because of something that has nothing to do with you? Are you going to have to run? These are real questions. So for me, uh, horror isn't theoretical. It's not uh, like, what if scary things happened? (laughs) It's like it's scary things do happen, and I want to watch people dealing with scary things because they're teaching me how to survive, the ones who do survive, and they're also teaching me what not to do, the ones who don't survive. Mm-hmm. So either way, I walk out of a good horror movie feeling, like I said, empowered. And and to me, it's worth it, like going through that gamut uh, and being frightened Um, And seeing characters rise to the challenge, and and usually somebody can walk away, right? That feeling of triumph really feeds something deep in me. But I do, I will add this, uh, as more and more black horror and horror starring black people gets popular, we do have to grapple with this question of how we treat black bodies and violence against black bodies on screen, because this is this is very real. you know, um, a traumatized community, in its entertainment, in some ways, is not going to be able to sit and relax at watching certain kinds of violence, right? Of course, in horror, people do die. But you want to give death meaning and you want to treat death with respect. You don't write lazily so that a character does something stupid. And dies. You don't do that in any kind of horror, but especially for black characters, do not let them go out being stupid.
1: Especially in real life in which, you know, violence, deadly violence against black and brown people is often sort of treated as meaningless and almost like a natural thing.
4: Yeah, I'm still so upset that Mike Brown's body was left lying out in that street for hours and hours on some kind of display, you know, as if to some sort of like warning to the community. What... It's just a sick, I won't even, someone might say, oh, it was an oversight or whatever, but that oversight, are you kidding me? That, and that kind of trauma is something that we live with. So even if we don't know Mike Brown, that might not be my son, we know it could be our son, that could be our street, right? Mm -hmm. And it feels very personal. So, so yes, knowing that, um, creating black characters and brown characters, you have, there's a wariness that a lot of us carry in life where, you know, the joke that we make fun as we watch horror movies, oh, people would never do that, and I kind of, you know, just roll our eyes in bad horror movies, I would say. So So our characters have to sort of bring that same awareness <laughs> in in the fiction, in the horror, you know, in the fiction and in the films, that they're not arbitrarily doing stupid things, that they're thinking it through, that if there's a sign of trouble, you react to that sign of trouble. You don't walk toward it, you walk away from it.
1: I'm thinking about just the other day after... President Trump made his comments about lynching. One of the things that was happening on Twitter was people were trying to Mm. make a point about lynching by sharing photos from lynchings, from actual lynchings of black people in the United States. And it was this really sort of macabre, thing that was happening where people were trying to use these very grisly photos to make a point about why people should not be cavalier about lynching, about using that language, even as they were being sort of cavalier about showing these bodies. And it sort of occurred to me that we rarely see white people's bodies treated with that sort of casualness um, to make like rhetorical points. And it sort of underlines your point, the point you're making about the way black bodies are treated in horror.
4: Well, I, you know, I totally understand what happened there because I felt an impulse myself. Like lynching, okay, this is one lynching i I totally get it. I was so angry, and then I stopped myself because you know as my follower count grows, I start to realize I have to to sort of be mindful about the the impact of the images uh that I tweet have on my followers who are already traumatized, mm-hmm. right, so whether they're black, they're white, whatever, it's we're all sort of like minded in like what the hell is going on
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: and Daily trauma is is bad enough. You know, I learned with Tamir Rice, the poor um, child shot playing with a toy gun in Cleveland, that I can't watch police videos anymore. So even if you tell me this 11-year-old girl is only being beaten or whatever by a police officer, I I know I can't watch that, which might sound funny um, or ironic, rather, for someone who writes horror. But I don't have the same stomach for real-life horror. Mm -hmm. And to me, a, a police officer... Physically abusing or even berating an 11-year-old child at her school is horror.
1: So horror movies and horror fiction provides like a safe way to process the feelings of horror around things like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown that can't get resolved in real life?
4: Yeah, for me... Um Real life is so scary. Racism is so scary. Climate change is so scary that a movie about some demons and monsters and vampires, listen, that's nothing, right? I can have fun watching that and get scared in a safe way that helps me engage with my fear in a way that won't hurt me or paralyze me and then expel it. Walk out, go on about my business and be like, well, at least this president isn't a zombie or whatever I want to tell myself. <laughs> 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 or, you know, at least there isn't a zombie outbreak going on while we're undergoing this presidency is what I mean to say, you know, because that would be worse. It uh, just would. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so it makes you kind of grateful for, for the fact that there is no such thing as a zombie apocalypse that we know of, that, you know, we don't actually know people who were possessed probably, you know. But, yeah, it's a lighter, gentler way to engage with fear.
1: Tanana reeve Du is a professor at UCLA. where She teaches a class on Black horror and Afrofuturism, and she's also an author. Tanana Reeve, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. This has been great. And that is our show. And did you know that we are taping a live episode of Code Switch that you can come to... It's November second in Chicago, Illinois. We really want to see y'all smiling faces, so please come kick it with us, IRL. You can find more details at nprpresents.org. You can get at us at NPR Codeswitch on Twitter and IG. You can follow KGB on Twitter at Karen Bates, all one word. I'm G E E D E two one five.
0: This episode was produced by Kamari Devarajan and Jess Kang. It was edited by Leah Danella.
1: And we would be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch crew L.A. Johnson, Dahlia Mortada, Christina Kala, Alyssa Jong Perry, Thomas Liu, Kumari Devarajan, Varylin Williams, and Steve Drummond. Get better, Steve. Our intern is Jordanos Tesfazion. I'm Gene Demby.
0: And I'm Karen Grigsby Bates. Be easy, yo. Boo.